The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early. So everyone can go home on time. There's Granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So I talk a lot about how much therapy saved my life and how lucky I am to have my amazing therapist, Dr. Nay. But not everybody can get an appointment with Dr. Nay. And I really wanted to break the stigma on getting help or asking for help. So that is why I partnered with a company called online-therapy.com. They have plans that start around $30 a week and you can get weekly therapy sessions for less than $50 a week. You can also get my 20% off code by going to my website, judgingmegan.com and you go to the therapy tab and if you click on the link at the bottom you can get 20% off your first month well we are lucky enough today to actually have a friend of mine on the show she's an amazing girl and or woman and um, we become friends and we met probably about a year ago through, or maybe more than that. We've known each other, like, because we live in such a small, I would say town, even though it's not part of LA where everybody knows everybody at the beach, that um, we, somebody once said that you and I are a lot alike and that we should meet. And then I remember meeting at somebody's birthday party and we just hit it off. And so we've kind of like come in and out of each other's lives at different times. And now we're friends and we go on walks and we chat and you're supportive of my podcast and you listen and thank you for 
listening and spreading the word. And I just wanted to welcome you to the podcast. Hi, Tara. Hi, Megan. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You look so pretty. You're like a little ray of light. Um, you're very you sweet. me a dirty look, you guys. Well, I, I prefer when you called me a girl before a woman. So, so let's <laughs> I want to be called a girl all the time too. And when you go to the grocery store now and they call you ma'am, it's really depressing. I want like the days when I'm called miss, I prefer that. I don't like, I don't like when people call me ma'am. Or when they don't ask for your ID when you're buying alcohol. That just I know. When they ask for your ever. ID. They only ask for my ID, which I found out they asked for everyone's ID at Target, which really depressed me. But they didn't ask me at Target. And I know that they're supposed to ask everyone, even if they look 60. And they didn't ask me the other day. So that was really offensive. No, no, no. Because you should just have it out because you know they're going to scan the back of the card. But they didn't. So they must have thought I was like a teenager because you look super young. So... I am, I'm really, I'm really excited. I'm also, um, when I say I'm excited, it's more that I, I know your story. It's not an easy one. You've been through a lot in your life. Um, I think that if I have a listener, which every podcast I do kind of has a different topic and it's all about trauma and kind of coming out the other side. And your story is one of dealing with a lot of difficult situations throughout your life. And we're going to start just telling me about you and where you're from and where you grew up and just start right there. So let's talk about you. Okay. I'm the oldest of five. I grew up in Westlake Village and Agora Hills. I went to a private Catholic school, well, different ones, but mostly private Catholic schools. Um, my parents are still together. But they had a, you know, a an interesting marriage, I would say, um, semi-typical childhood, but, um, but nothing really like crazy health related, I will say has ever had ever happened to our family. And then I met my husband, um, in my thirties, got married pretty quickly. He was from the same town, but we had gone to different colleges. Um, and we were set up and we decided to have our kids right away, which we did. I have a 14 year old boy and a 13 year old boy. Um, and we've lived down here in the South Bay the entire time. So when you when she says the South Bay, it means the beach. I've talked about this before, but oh. in case I have a new listener, it's the it's the beach community of Los Angeles, and it's a very like I just said in the beginning, it's almost like a small town, even though we live in Los Angeles. I know the so Agora Hills is considered the valley, right? Well, we're actually offended when you say it's part of oh, the valley. No. Oh, no, um, my God. My high school was in the valley. What? Okay. What What high school did you go so, to? Well, I went to Chaminade High School, but Agora is in the Canoe Valley, which is like the Thousand Oaks, Ventura side, I guess, of the valley. Um, but my high school is in the valley, so a lot of my friends are from the valley. And I love the valley. So I love the valley, nice. too, and I never have understood, like, why people in Los Angeles treat the Valley like it's like the bridge and tunnel like they do in New York. It's very strange because it's, it's, a, there's such nice areas of the Valley, Agora, Calabasas, where the Kardashians live, like all those areas are gorgeous. It's just very, very, very hot is the problem with the one issue with the Valley that I have. That's the best part of the Valley for me. Yeah. But if you're from the Valley, you like that heat. And you, and you have to have a pool. Everyone has a pool. 
every, it's a, like, you can't live in the Valley, you guys, like it's against the law to live in the Valley without a pool, right? Yeah. Everyone I knew had a pool. That's a joke, by the way. Um, so, okay. So then you got married, you, um, you, that's very close together to have a, two kids a year apart. Yep. 13 months apart. So wow. um, two boys thought they'd, thought they'd be besties. I'm still waiting for that to happen, but they're, <laughs> they're two cuties I'll say. And, and what, what, how was like early marriage? Like you were together for a while. Um, tell me about like, you know, you were both from the same place. So then like, it's, it sounds like it took a while you waited. Oh, well, actually, how long were you married before you had kids? So we were married. Well, we were pregnant. Um, I was pregnant during our wedding. So we okay. found out we were having a baby six weeks before our wedding. We'd been engaged for a while. Um, and we just thought, oh, we'll try now because it's going to take us so long. We were 34, 33 and 34. And I had friends who were going through fertility stuff and, and I didn't have a regular period. And so we just assumed it might take years. So let's start as soon as possible. And then it was the first time we, we tried, we got a little chase. So he was at the wedding too. And my tummy. Well, you know what? I've never said, told anybody this on, on the podcast, but why not? Like it's time to share away. I, I also was pregnant at my wedding. So Yeah. And I was wearing a muumuu. I was wearing um, like a short caftan. And I was was the, that was the worst part of my wedding was my dress because my dream was always to wear like an Audrey Hepburn straight across strapless. And I had it designed and the lady made it. And then of course I was going to lose, you know, weight before the wedding as every bride does. So I was envisioning all the, you know, every fitting the dress being taken in. And all that happened was the dress kept getting taken out at each fitting. And then in the final one, they had to add straps just to hold up my chest because at this point it was way too big. And it was the ugliest dress I had ever seen in my life. It was the opposite of what I wanted. And it went right in the trash can on the wedding night. I mean, that's like my one thing I always tell Ron, because we had, um, we had, actually gotten pregnant and we had been together a very long time. And I always tell him, I'm like, I just would like to, like, now I feel like I'm so old that I like have to wear like a white suit and have like a short haircut and like, or a bob or something. I don't feel like I could like pull off like one of those, like, you know, like Grace Kelly. Like I always thought I would be like a Grace Kelly type of bride. And instead I looked like a meatball So I, you know, I wanted to wear something loose and who was I kidding by the way, you know, like it was like everyone knew that I was pregnant. Oh, everyone knew. Yeah. Like I was announcing it when I was like one week pregnant because I was so excited. Yeah. So, okay. So it sounds to me like you kind of had like the normal, like happy, like, like having your first baby, um, everything went okay. You didn't really deal with any issues in the first pregnancy and having the first baby. And then, and then what ended up happening? Um, everything was great. It was, Chase was an easy baby. And, um, then I got pregnant when he was five months old. He was five months old when I got pregnant. Well, maybe it was sooner, three months old. I don't know. He was, he was 13 months old when, um, Chinny, which is short for Christian was born and he was born healthy too and seemed normal, well, is normal. Um, and I hate the word normal. I should just say like typical. Um, 
so he was he was meeting all his milestones in preschool. I have two boys at this point. They're two and three years old. And um, probably just a week before he ended up being diagnosed with a brain tumor, I had said to a friend, gosh, he runs with his hands straight out. And I keep telling him, like, pull your hands in when you're running because um, it looked weird. But in hindsight, he was doing that for balance. Um, and so I'd asked her for a phone number of somebody who I thought could assess him. Anyways, long story short. So there were a few signs um, looking back, but long story short, he got dizzy one day, just he had opened a music card, was spinning around in our kitchen. It was in the morning. Chase was at preschool. And I had said, if you do that, you're going to get dizzy and fall over. And the next thing I knew, he hit his head on the refrigerator and then the wood floor. He was crying, picked him up, put him on the couch. And then I think he either threw up or said he had a headache. So I knew he probably had a mild concussion. Called his pediatrician. She said, bring him in so I can check him. Um, and she checked him. He was fine. He was calm by then. His pupils weren't dilated. But she said, let's just get him a CT scan just to be sure. Even though it was a very, it was a typical fall for any toddler. Um, yeah. But how I always think. Sorry to interrupt, but how, what exactly? He was two years and 11 months at that point. So almost okay. three. Okay. And um, also some of the signs that you knew, we didn't talk about this, but you had a background in uh, medical device uh, pharmaceuticals, correct? So you kind of- Yeah, I had been a pharmaceutical sales rep for okay. eight years. So you had obviously studied up on like, different parts of the body. Like for me, I probably would have just not known, you know, anything. Well, I did. Yeah, I did. I will say that that work experience didn't really come into play until after he was diagnosed and on chemotherapy. And I'll get to that later. But as I was reading all of the studies on surviving a brain tumor and the type of tumor that he had, I did remember saying to myself, oh, you can break this down because you've had to learn and teach so many different studies, like, you know, during work. Yeah. Um, so I knew, I knew just that some studies, you know, they're written with obviously an outcome in mind. I know that some don't mean as much depending on the patient population that's in there, et cetera. So it did actually help me a little bit in my research, but that was later. Um, so anyway, so his pediatrician, and it's funny cause I still go to her and we're pretty close and we've been through a lot together. Um, I haven't gone back to ask her, but I, I think she recommended that CT scan, even though other pediatricians that I had consulted with passed that, not to switch from her, but just because I was reaching out to every physician I knew to get their advice when we were struggling as to, you know, what treatment to choose. Um, but I think she recommended a CT scan because she had a patient a year before that who was diagnosed with a brain tumor in Manhattan Beach. And it's very rare for a pediatrician to have a patient diagnosed with a brain tumor at all, even once in their career. So twice was probably significant, obviously, but also Natasha Richardson, Liam Neeson's wife, yeah. had just passed away from a brain yeah. bleed. Yeah. And I think that people were a little bit more vigilant around that time about checking falls for brain bleeds. So the there were so many like mini miracles in his story, but one of them is that she asked for a CT scan, even though it was fine. So we got that that day across the street. I got a call from the uh, radiology department that said he was fine um, that afternoon. And then she called me that night. We were leaving. I remember it was December 9th because we were leaving December 10th to go to Mammoth with some other families. And she called me at 
5 p.m. and left a message. And I hadn't called her back yet because I was running around. I know exactly where I was at Marine and Sepulveda pulling into the Ralph's parking lot. She calls again at 6. And I said, oh, hi, I was going to call you. Do I need to wake him up throughout the night to make sure that he's fine? Just because I need a mild concussion. She said, can you pull your car over? And I said, no, I'm on Bluetooth. It's fine. We can just keep talking. And she said, I really want you to pull the car over. I don't like to talk to people when they're driving. And I was confused because I'm on speaker. Um, And it was literally as I pulled into Chili's parking lot next to Ralph's that I had that, that feeling just started to overcome me. Like something bad is just about to happen. And yeah. And I pulled over and she said exactly this. There's artifact. She said the first tech that looked at it, it was fine, but we always send it to a backup neurosurgeon to double check. And there's artifact um, showing, and it could be just a shadow and it's probably nothing. And I said, okay. And then she said, but I know you, you're not going to want to go out. Oh, she said, it's not an emergency, but I know you, and you're not going to want to go out of town without getting an MRI. And I was actually thinking, well, I do want to go out of town because everybody's relying on me and we're about to take off. Can this wait? And she said, actually, I think you should go tomorrow. So then it was like, again, that sinking feeling is getting worse. And she said, um, I'm going to have the, somebody waiting for you at UCLA, um, um, emergency room tomorrow morning. So bring them in. I'll call you later with the details. So you're going to meet blah, blah, blah. So I went home at that point. I'm just stunned. I think I was barely speaking, you know, probably said three words to my husband, like I'm waiting for a call. And she called later that night and said, you're going to go into the ER tomorrow morning. You're going to ask for this nurse. This nurse is going to have a room waiting for you. Then the chief of neurosurgery is going to meet you. Um, and he's going to get an MRI. So none of that sounds good. My parents came that next morning at like six to watch Chase and my dad's just a straight shooter. So we're walking out the door and I'm a nervous wreck and my mom says, it's fine. It's fine. Everything's going to be fine. I know it. My dad, I remember he just looked at me and he said, it's not because there's no way the chief of neurosurgery is meeting you in the ER at this point when he hasn't had a scan yet. So we got there and so you knew like that your dad just told you like that. He knew he just knew because common sense would tell you that, you know, I was already emotional and scared. My mom was being emotional, but you know, trying to be positive, but my dad's just such a straight shooter. He's like, I'm telling you, it can't be good if they're already planning to meet you there without the MRI being done. So we get there and sure enough, we get into the room and a younger doctor, not the chief, he was probably an attending or fellow came in and said, so you're, we're going to take your son in for an MRI because we need to look at his brain tumor. And both my husband and I were like, he doesn't have a brain tumor yet. We're actually like here just to see there's a shadow and they want to see what it is maybe, but not for sure. And he just said, no, it actually is for sure. We can already see that from the CT scan. So that was it. That was the beginning of. That's how he told you. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't callous at all. He was just matter of fact, as most doctors are. and Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, But we were, we thought we had at least another hour or two before we were going to find out what it even was, you know, not that the time mattered, but it was, it was just the beginning of like hearing the worst news, the worst news that we're in, you know, you go down this path where you just feel like every bit of news you're getting is like one in a million chance this is going to happen. And it's the worst thing I'm going to hear. What was, that, what was that like having, having somebody say, like, what did, what did you do? Did you 
Were you in denial? Were you, did you cry? Like how, how do you remember? I, I know what that, it, even though my situation's different, the, the word cancer, I've talked about this before, tumor, anything like that. It's like, you don't, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to right. function. Right. What did, how did you feel? So it's funny because the entire like journey, if you want to call it that from diagnosis to when he was done with everything, my husband was more the crier or the super positive thinker that I didn't think was realistic or maybe a little denial. I'm just like more, I go into a zone and I've done it with other you know, situations in my life. And I think a lot of women are this way. It's just like, you have no choice. Like I couldn't really cry because I didn't have the time to break down and I couldn't do it because I now had a child to save. It literally felt like as a mother, like I have to save my child's life. And you just go into like a natural mama bear instinct and you would, and anyone I know would too. So ironically, I had said to a friend at a dinner, probably a month or two before that, we were sitting around talking a bunch of moms about somebody who had a sick kid and I can't remember the kid, but I had said, and one of the moms reminded me, I would die if that happened to my kid. I would absolutely fall apart. I don't think I could do anything. Um, but you really, that's not the case. You just power through. And I will say when he was finally better at the very end of it all, you know, over a year later, yeah, cried a lot more than than I ever did going through it because you just have to put your nose to the ground and power through. And I felt like I had to find a solution for him. So, yeah, I think that you're right when it comes to like just mothers in general. It's like mother bear in like some kind of instinct that you just kind of, I mean, I'll tell a story like on a side note because in a little bit of a way, a way I can't relate to what, I mean, your biggest fear as a parent is God forbid something happens to your kid. There's no pain on the planet than what, like being a parent, losing a child or having a child be sick. Or, I mean, I know because I know people that have gone through it and it's, there's no other kind of suffering or pain like that. But when Ella was four months old, she had a seizure and, um, and, and, and it was really scary. She, I went to give her like children's or baby Tylenol, whatever it is in her, she was co-sleeping at the time. And I kind of like turned, like saw her seize, which was the scariest thing I've ever experienced. I can still picture it in my head. And I, and it was so terrifying to, to see that, but I knew right away, okay, call 911 do this, do that. You're, it's almost like something we crazy takes over. And I, I know this is shocking and you know me, I am not the most calm person on the planet. I know that you're shocked to hear that because you know, it's not, you know, it's true. But I, I, and then we were in the hospital and she had a kidney infection and like, thank God she's okay. But for a brief moment, I was like, what if my, what if she doesn't make it? Like you go into this weird Mm-hmm. space where you're like, this can't be true. Am I in like some weird alternate planet? Right. So I, I don't, I don't know, but I, I could see that about you. I know that you're kind of like one of those people just from knowing you that like, it's like, okay, this is what I got to do and I'm going to do it, you know? And so, so what, so then what ended up happening? He got, he was diagnosed and then, and then what happened? 
So he was diagnosed on a Friday at UCLA. We, there was, there's a whole other story I'll tell you about that situation, but you know, you learn as you go through stuff like this and, and really I'll say everybody goes through their own things and nothing is like, I will say losing a child is in its own box and something so different that none of us will ever, you know, fully understand. But if your kid's having their tonsils removed or a brain tumor, it can be equally traumatic to you as a parent because it's your child and they're suffering. It's as simple as that. So I don't really think this is so much worse than anything else. I think we just, we just handle it. Right. Um, but he was diagnosed on a Friday. They, um, kept him overnight, but we realized he didn't need to actually stay there. They, they scheduled the surgery for Monday. Um, they said they thought it was one of three types of brain tumors that are commonly found in children that age. They knew it was located near his brainstem, which is one of the worst spots to have it, but they didn't think it was in his brainstem. They thought it was outside of it. Um, and, and they didn't know what type it was. So they told us the three types. They told us which type was best, which type was worst. Um, and then we realized over the weekend, we actually didn't need to stay in the hospital. They were sort of doing that in hindsight to make sure we didn't go elsewhere. But I had consulted, I immediately started consulting with any neurosurgeon I could get in touch with over the weekend, friends of friends. Um, and I was told by somebody that I really trusted that this is not a fast growing type. I, I was starting, so a friend of mine had driven the scan to his house up in LA. People were just looking at my son's scan over yeah. the weekend. Yeah. Um, he said, this is not a fast growing type. We don't know for sure. Cause obviously there's only been one scan but I don't think it's fast growing. I think you have time to consult with other people. So we took him out of the hospital. We consulted at CHLA. We ended up choosing a surgeon there. Um, that surgeon told us it would be like a five hour surgery. They hook when you have a tumor near or on your brainstem, they hook you up to all of these monitors that check your functions, like your breathing, your movement of your limbs, um, swallowing. So all the nerves that are back there, that if one of those were to be next, you could possibly not ever breathe on your own for the rest of your life or not ever swallow or not ever walk. So it's just a risky area to operate. So they said, we're going to attach these monitors. If any functions go down, we'll know it's probably a five hour surgery. The doctor came out after two hours and said, took Chip and I into a room and I'll never forget. He said, he didn't like us, which is another story I'll tell you another time because I didn't really want to hire him. I said he was too old. His hand was shaking when he went to put the disc in his computer. So we we actually hired his younger counterpart. But that guy said, well, I got to bring in the chief. So he's anyways, the one who came out to tell us the news. And he just said, your son's tumor is inoperable. And he definitely used that word. It's inoperable. We couldn't get any of it out because all of his functions started going down. This tumor is probably in his brainstem. So we closed him back up and he's going to be put on chemotherapy and the oncologist will talk to you tomorrow. So that night we Google inoperable brain tumors and there's only one truly inoperable type, which is a DIPG. And that's always fatal for children. It's the saddest, worst diagnosis a child can get. And so that night was hideous. We were in the PICU. We knew he wasn't going to survive more than. I mean, at, at worst, it's like three months at best, maybe a couple of years. So that was a hideous night. Um, and then the oncologist came in to meet with us the next day and he was like Santa Claus. He looked like Santa Claus and he gave us some really good news. When, when we said, you know, it's a DIPG, he said, no, it's not. The, the pathology came back. It's a um, 
hyalocytic astrocytoma. It's like a benign type. It's slow growing. It's just in a really bad location. You got misinformation. It was just because that doctor had used the word. And when you Google that word, DIPG comes up and it was only inoperable in that doctor's opinion based on the location. But anyways, um, oh my God, it's, he went on. Yeah. yeah it's, there's so many like highs and lows obviously in this journey, but, um, there were a lot of like really special moments too. And I used to always say, even during it, I wouldn't really change it because if, if I could, except for taking away Chinny's pain, like the physical stuff he had to go through, because it does change you permanently, mostly for the better, you know? And it's just, I wouldn't change anything because I'm so grateful for our outcome. So I don't have regrets. So as I tell the scary parts of the story, I, I'm not feeling sorry for me or for us or for even my son. Um, it's just, it is what it is. And we actually, you know, we're in the, the worst club in the world, but with like some of the best people. Right. So you got the diagnosis. You oh, yes. were, so then you couldn't go into, you, you had the, sur- you couldn't have the surgery. Santa Claus came in. And then what was the news from Santa Claus? Santa said that we will put him on chemotherapy. Um, there were two chemos that he was going to put them on, which by the way, have been around for 30 plus years. They're not highly successful, which is cut to why I did a lot of fundraising post chinny being better because it's really sad. It's a really sad state. What is, what happens in kids oncology, because there's not a lot of money there. So there's not a lot of research there, nor are there any new products, but anyways, he said, we're going to put him on these two medicines. Um, he'll get weekly chemo. We're hoping that it keeps the tumor from growing. It's not going to shrink it much, if at all, and it's not going to take it away. So he's not going to have a cure, but if we can maintain it, he still has all of his functions and we can prevent it from growing. You know, we can get him through puberty and to adulthood. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I guess, information around, because I know it's not always the case, but often the case that if a kid gets through puberty with a brain tumor, that the brain tumor stops growing post-puberty. So if you can get to like young adulthood and maintain the size, you can live with it for the rest of your life. So that was actually the goal at that point. So he went on chemo for six months and his was actually shrinking tiny bits. So we were doing MRIs probably every, I don't know, six weeks. I can't remember. And often it would shrink like 10%, which was a massive celebration for us, right? Each and every time. Yeah. And then six months in, um, he woke up one day and just vomited 14 times that morning early. And actually when, when your brain fluid is off, you are nauseous in the morning or right before bed because you're laying flat and your brain fluid switches. So he woke up Early in the morning, we vomited a bunch. We knew something was wrong. We rushed him to the hospital. They did an emergency MRI and they said his tumor has, I guess they used the word swollen. It had just, they didn't say grew. They said it had sort of like, because when they look at it on a scan, there was a white part in the middle that had been growing. They thought that was turning necrotic, meaning dying from the inside, which is rare, but good. But they thought that maybe that had changed sort of like the... I can't remember the word they used, but it made the volume sort of bigger in the tumor. And it was all of a sudden putting a lot of pressure on his brainstem. So they rushed him in. They wanted to rush him into surgery, not like that minute, but like the next day. And they called it a debulking. So at this point, it's not a tumor removal because they know that area is too risky. So they're like, we're going to go in and debulk it so that he's not 
sick. So we're just going to take out what we can, but definitely not all of it. So once again, um, we're forced with like, you know, a tough moment in the treatment, but also a decision to be made. And I had been researching in those six months, all the pediatric neurosurgeons in the country. And in hindsight, it's funny in hindsight, because once I tell you that the tumor was ultimately fully removed, we didn't even really need chemo, but I would never regret that time because I needed that time to find the doctor who was going to remove the tumor. So I had been researching the country. We had sent his scan. I would package up every time I would find one online that was, you know, highly regarded package up his MRI scan, his pathology report, his surgical report, a handwritten letter from me, a Christmas card photo. And I would circle his cute little face. I wish I could hold it up right now because he's such a cutie. And I would draw an arrow to him and I would just make a plea and say like, I really want your opinion on my son. This is the type of tumor that he has. And I, I read online that you're the best and can I get a consult with you? And what I found so interesting is, and I would overnight the package always. And so I knew it was getting to the office the next morning. I'm going to say nine out of 10 doctors would call me themselves that day, like within an hour of receiving the package or their nurse, but mostly the doctor themselves and leave me a message and say, I want to consult with you on your son. Call me tonight or I'll call you tonight. It was really incredible. And I just, I think now that I've been in this little cancer world for a while and I've met a lot more adults, obviously with it, doctors respond so sympathetically to children with something like that. And they just, they jump for them. And of course there's always that aspect of like, I want the surgery because I want to gain the experience. I probably want, you know, the business, but they do want to take a tumor, especially a huge one out of a little head if they can. And so the, it just sort of opened up all these options for us as far as who we would go to. Should he, should he need surgery one day, which he ended up needing. And the other thing I learned that I tell everybody is cause I didn't know this. What we learned is the pioneer of pediatric brain surgery was um, this doctor named, um, um, I don't want to confuse him with that gross pedophile Epstein. What's Jeffrey Epstein. This guy's name was Fred Epstein. He was the pioneer of pediatric brain surgery and he was in New York. All of the people that I was finding online who were highly reputable, I would go in Google chat rooms and find parents of kids with this type of brain tumor and ask for their outcomes. And all of the most successful stories were coming from surgeons on the East Coast. It just naturally makes sense that the people who trained under him were still over there. So it's just good to know as a parent or when you have to make a decision like that for your kids or even for ourselves, there are hubs within the country that if something's relatively new, there's going to be an area where more people have been trained and thus a little more experience. So yeah, that's what it's, I it's like the it. Cleveland clinic for, for hearts or, you know, right. anything. Yeah. They're specific. That makes sense. Um, I'm just really impressed. I mean, I'm really impressed by you. You were kind of like, you kind of were like an Aaron Brockovich, you know, where you were kind of like, I'm not going to settle and I'm going to, do my best to like get the best information. I don't know if everybody would have done that. So, so, I mean, it's been, it's a blessing and a curse to have this personality. (laughs) I like your personality. I like you. It's, I mean, I like it and I wouldn't want to be any other way. And sometimes I think Ginny was given to me for that reason. Um, because I just, first, I don't like being told no. And secondly, if I want something to happen, I will just, find a way to make it happen. So I felt like I was going to find 
the answer for him. I had to, because every study I read, and this brings me back to those pharmaceutical studies, every study I read while he was on chemo would say, long-term survival is directly correlated to the percentage of the tumor that comes out. And long-term survival is only five years, according to these studies. So if 50% of that tumor was removed in that first surgery, he would have 50% of a chance to live to five years. None of that was good enough. Like deep down, I didn't want to say it because the doctors were saying chemo safer, be too risky to go in and remove the tumor. But deep down, I wanted 100% of that tumor out because I wanted him to live obviously more than five years. So that's why I just kept researching. Yeah. Um, But I will say too, during all those months of chemo and we were in the hospital at different points, you know, as things would go wrong, as they just naturally do, I would overhear like on the other side of the curtain, many parents who the doctor would just come in and say, this is how it's going to be. This is the diagnosis, this is the treatment. And I would be waiting because, you know, I would launch into like 50 questions and they weren't even questions. I was basically like cross-examining doctors and nurses and offending them, unfortunately, but that was just my way. I would hear these parents say nothing, just like, okay, thank you. Okay. We'll be here tomorrow with not one question. And there was a part of me too, that was jealous of that mentality or that lack of like skepticism that I have because I kept thinking, God, it'd be such an easier way to live. And I could be more present for Chinny and Chase if I wasn't psychotically researching everything, but obviously your, your personality isn't going to be anything but your personality. And certainly in a time like that. So I was, I was a full on maybe crazy person. I'm sure a lot of the doctor's files will say, but I don't regret any of it. Um, so anyways, you wouldn't have had the outcome. So there, like you said, there's a reason why you were paired together. Your two souls. I, I hope so. Um, so we had found this doctor in New York and my husband had flown out and, and actually interviewed the top four. We had narrowed it down to four. Is that wine or water? Cause if it's wine, you're just mean. I'm not drinking wine. I'm okay. drinking water. Like okay. Jesus. Then, I, then I won't get up and grab myself some wine. No, but I wish um, I did have wine because this is ha- a heavy story. And we are we are actually, just so the listeners know, we're, we're recording this in the late afternoon. So it's not well, 9 a.m. <laughs> like I usually and it there, Yeah. Oh, is that when you play it? I usually record my podcast, just so everyone knows, at a very early like uh, in the morning, but I'm, I'm doing a late afternoon one. So that's why we're talking about wine. Okay. Proceed. I I wouldn't call you out girlfriend, even if it wasn't. (laughs) Um, Okay. So then my husband had flown out and interviewed these four and there was just this one that stood out to him. He was, had an amazing bedside manner, was a marathon runner, was at Memorial Sloan Kettering, was just so personable. Just really, he came home. He's like, he's the one. There was another one at um, John Hopkins that I really liked too. And they had consulted with me over the phone and my husband met them. So we just had these guys in the back of our mind. Anyways, the day that the local hospital wanted to debulk this tumor, we said, we really want to, we really want to go. And so we had gotten on the plane. Oh, and what I forgot is Santa Claus, which he shouldn't have done. He's retired. Actually, I think he retired years ago, moved out of state. And I want to say, I think just passed away, but he he told us while he was at our hospital, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but there is a doctor on the East Coast that I think you should consult with. Because I said, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm starting to consult everybody. He said, do not miss this one doctor. I used to work with him. And I think he would be perfect for your son. And it was him that we ended up choosing. And so I was always so grateful to him because he's the doctor that did the right thing. And he said, I'm not supposed to really say this. I'm on the payroll here, but 
this is your person based on what your son has and where it's located and, and the intricacy of the brainstem and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, um, so we jumped on a plane and Chinny was in surgery like three days later in New York. And how and old was he? How old was he at this? Like what was the time, time frame of all of this stuff? So he was diagnosed December 10th of 2010. He started, he got a port put in like two weeks later and then started chemo maybe the second week in January. He did chemo through the end of June. That's when he woke up. So it had been almost six months of chemo. Then he woke up and didn't feel well. And we jumped on that plane to New York. And so we were there. Okay. Um, that surgeon got the entire tumor out. He came out of that surgery. It was long, it was eight hours. And I'll never forget that day because everything's like singed in my memory. There were ants. I'll never forget walking around like the table. And I was like, how are they getting this massive medical building up to like the eighth floor? But there were just ants. And my mom was talking to me and I just kept spitting fire at her because I didn't want to be spoken to. And there's just all, all this weird stuff that day because the surgery stretched to eight hours. And, you know, they update you throughout it, but Mary, it's, um, it's your baby. It's a baby. It's, and like, he was so little. That's so little still. He was so little. And that first surgery where the doctors came out and said, we couldn't get it. It was supposed to be five hours and it was two hours. So it's this weird thing where I'm sitting there thinking, please don't come out early. Please don't come out early. Then it got really late, you know, a few hours past the estimated time. Then you're thinking the other way, but anyways, um, so that doctor came out and I'll never forget. He said, we got a gross total resection, which means all of it. And I think he's going to be fine. We're taking him off the ventilator now. Um, and he said exactly this. He goes, I just kept slowly slicing away diseased tissue until I could see healthy tissue. And once I saw that I had to stop because it was right on the brainstem. So we go into his room and he's, he loves food. That's been his thing his whole life. <laughs> and as they unhooked him, he literally, like they took out the ventilator, they took out whatever they could. And I could already see him wiggling his feet. I asked him to move his hands. So you're just checking like for paralysis, swallowing and breathing on their own. And then he spoke and said he was hungry. Why? Well, I think I said, do you want water? And he's like, I want food. And I was like, oh, he's fine. Like he can speak, he's moving and he's breathing. And he was out of the hospital within three days. And he had had a second massive craniotomy and a massive tumor removed. Um, and so, so we stayed a night or two in a, in a hotel, flew home, thought we had to have the worst of it, obviously behind us. And we're so grateful. And then Two days later, he started, I changed his diaper and there was red stuff in there. And I thought, oh, it's so weird. I remember changing it. And I'm like, did he eat raspberry jam? I know this is kind of gross, but I just remember that thought like, that's weird. Yeah. And it turned out it was blood. So I call, but I wasn't going to do anything about it. I wasn't, nothing was really registering. I was like, that's weird. I'll keep an eye on it. Then I noticed brain fluid leaking out of his incision. And so if that happens, you can get meningitis. So that time I was like, shit. So I called the doctor. I said, there's a drop of brain fluid coming out of his incision. They said, come into the hospital. Um, I think they have to put you on antibiotics right away so you don't get meningitis. So we get there and they check, start checking his vitals and they're just completely crashed. He had been hemorrhaging inside internally and I didn't know, and he, but he had been in agony a couple of nights in a row in the middle of the night, but I just kept thinking it's the sleeping with me, obviously I kept thinking it's the pain of the incision, 
but really his stomach was hemorrhaging. Well, not his stomach. There was a, it turned out it was an ulcer, but long story short into Tad, then we get admitted and they basically are like this brain fluid leak is the least of your problems. There's something massive going on internally. So I think they put him on antibiotics for the brain and then they put him under to scope him and they couldn't find the source of the bleed because they scope you from the top and they scope you from the bottom, but there's just a section of your intestines, I guess, that they can never get to in the middle unless they put like a camera pill in. But for some reason, I think they didn't think that was going to work with him. So 10 days later, we're still in the PICU and every two or three days, he would just hemorrhage out of his bottom and it would be like literally this much blood would have been poured across his bed. And he would be, the pain would be like building up where he'd be crying all the time. And then just that much blood would come pooling out in the bed. So that was actually obviously very scary. He was starting to get a lot of blood transfusions. They put him under twice in the first like week and scoped him twice and still couldn't find the source of the bleed. At this point, he can't eat any food, drink anything. So he's on IV nutrition. And remember, I said he likes food. So the biggest problem is he's basically begging for food the entire time. And it's hard to tell a three-year-old he can't eat. He was a shy kid, but literally got to the point where a nurse would walk by the room and he'd scream, hey, give me some food, like to a stranger. It was really heart, like heartbreaking. So it was sad. Um, And then a Saturday rolled around and it was Saturday night. And I called our pediatrician and I said, who was a UCLA doctor and we weren't at UCLA. I said, you have to get us out of here. He's not going to survive this. I can tell it's day 10 and he's hemorrhaging again. They haven't figured out the problem. Transfer us to UCLA. Like, please, I'm begging her. And she says, stay calm with GI stuff. You have to take time. And while I'm on the phone with her and I'm starting to lose my mind, a young attending doctor comes in because on the weekends there were just not, not attending. There were not a lot of attendings on the weekend. And like a fellow or an intern comes in and says, we think we know what it is. It was just the timing was weird because it was right when I said, get me out of this hospital. Um, she said, we think we know what it is. We have to take him in and scope him again. And I said, no, you've scoped him twice this week. You haven't found the blade. Why? Why am I going to say yes? And she was like, because we think we know. That's kind of all she said. And I was so unlike myself. Normally I'd be like, not a chance. I'll drive him myself. If you don't want to transport him, I'm going to UCLA now. But I was so tired. I think that I miraculously in hindsight gave up and I just said, fine, which was out of character for me. The anesthesiologist came in. I met her. I remember kind of giving her a weird look like you're so young. Like, do you, do you even know what you're doing? I was just frustrated there, but again, too tired to fight my usual fight. They took him in to a surgical room on a Saturday night, which is highly unusual with fellows. And and they called in an attending who wasn't even there that weekend, but he was the attending on call, the pediatric surgeon, um, just a general surgeon. And I, we never met him. They just took him into a room because at this point we're thinking they're just going to scope him again. And then the next thing you know, I'm in a waiting room with my best friend, Molly, my husband and my mom, and the surgeon comes running in and it's probably 10 PM, 11 PM. And he says, I can't, he said, Oh, a bunch of friends had donated blood for Chinny in that, those 10 days. I want to say like 60 people. It was a lot of blood. And he came running and he said, we tried, we found the bleed. We tried to cauterize it. It didn't work. We tried to clip it. It burst. He's bleeding out. We need your permission to give him stranger blood because we're running out of your donor blood. Do you have permission? You have to say yes. Um, or he could bleed out. And so of course we're like, Oh my God, yes. So he runs back in 
And then again, we Google stuff and it's not looking good. Um, that those two hours were hideous. And cause I actually didn't, I thought that was it. Like I never cried, but I'm going to cry. That's okay. Honey. Cause at yeah. that point I really thought, I thought even when it was a brain tumor, that was maybe the DIPG, we would have months. This time I thought, I'm not going to say goodbye. So anyways, that was a weird two hours. And then God, I never even think about this. And then um, that surgeon came in, Dr. Bliss. I love his name. And he said, I want you to know your son had a pseudoaneurysm on his artery. It's an artery you don't need. So we sewed it up on all four sides. There's a zero chance of a re bleed. We don't think he's going to have brain damage. He could because he was bleeding out, but the anesthesiologist replaced his blood almost as fast as it was coming out. So I remember having that like, God, is he going to be brain damaged? But I'm grateful he's alive at this point. Um, it was substerile because we didn't know we were going to cut his stomach open. Just so you know, I had to, he did this like thing because I had to rip his stomach open. So he's got a lot of sutures. It was substerile. So we're going to keep him on a ventilator for a few days because he has a paralyzed vocal cord, which he had already had. We thought from either the chemo or the tumor, we weren't sure. There's a very good chance his body's going to swell up, which you do from abdominal surgery sometimes. So he's going to be strapped down, his hands too. Um, and I don't know which organs I damaged of his, but I did damage some organs because I had to move them all really quickly to get to this lead. So that was an overwhelming night. That was July 9th, I remember. Um, and then they pushed him into... You know, they transported him into like a private room in the PICU. And there were so many, like he's on all these machines at this point. And there's doctors and nurses. And and I got a migraine, which I mean, I never had left his bedside. And that night I did, I had to go. I thought my head was actually going to pop off. I went into the parent room. I'd never done that and left my husband in there. And I remember leaving him and he's just crying, like at the foot of the bed. And I went and slept for maybe two hours and came back in and, the next few days were hard because he was strapped down on a ventilator. So he can't breathe or talk. And when the pain med would wear off, you know, they can't, he can't motion or anything, but the only way I could tell is like a tear would start like dripping out of the side of his eye. And then they would give him more morphine and they just said, we have to wait to see if he's going to swell. So, um, after he never did, of course, so he was totally fine. Miraculously again, um, and on day three, they, they said, we're going to extubate him. We think he's going to be fine. Um, but we have to take the ventilator off and make sure he can breathe on his own again. They leave him on too long. There's also which, a chance was, which I'm sure was very scary. It's so scary. And it's so interesting the way they extubate a child. So they're like, okay, mom, you have to get on the bed and sit behind him, like straddle him. And we're going to pull the, the, um, whatever it is like cord, not cord, um, tube, tube out of his yeah. mouth. And then there's a, there's a pulmonology guide. They bring in this whole pulmonology group and they can't even tell you the time because these groups go around excavating people in the hospital. And so they're like, they'll just get to you when they get to you this afternoon. So this guy's like, I'm going to bag him, which just means like push air into him. Once you, once we extubate him, but you have to hold him up. So I'm holding him up. Of course, as luck would have it, my sister who had been with my older son, who's four at the time, they were supposed to be, they were away doing something fun, but they happened to walk in the room right when this is happening, which I wouldn't want Chase to see. But again, 
a bad thing turns into a good thing. I'm glad he's in the room now. So they ex, um, extubate Chinny and he's, you know, you have a raspy voice at that point and he's trying to choke out some words. And I know it's going to be like, I love you mom or something. He's like, mom, in this cute little raspy voice. And I said, yeah, now everyone's there. The nurses, the pulmonology group, my sister, my husband. And he says, I have to tell Chase a joke. Because <laughs> they, oh. Chase and Chinny had had this thing right before all this happened where they were really into telling each other jokes. And I had even <laughs> really forgotten about it, but it was, he was dying to tell Chase a joke. And he tried to choke one out. I'm sure it wasn't even funny, but it was so cute the way he he said it, he was dying to say it. And he was really just this little three-year-old that had been through hell and came out of it. Just this little boy who wanted to tell his brother a joke. And from that day forward, he just had this super fast, unexpected, very highly unusual recovery. He went from a kid with a brain tumor that was four centimeters by three and a half centimeters, which is huge what they called intrinsic, which meant inside his brainstem. That's what we thought the whole time that he was on chemo to a kid that had the tumor fully removed from a heart area to, to operate on with the stomach ulcer that could have killed him with no brain damage. He did have pancreatitis. That was the only organ that the doctor damaged. And that kept us in the hospital for three more weeks until his numbers are good because he couldn't eat or drink again for another couple of weeks. Um, and he had left side paralysis and he had floppy foot syndrome from one of the chemos. And he did have the paralyzed vocal cord. He had sleep apnea. He had a lot of things, but probably within a year, they were all gone for the most part. Let me ask a question. Was the brain uh, tumor connected to the stuff, the aneurysm and the totally separate or was so actually it was, it okay. was, and I'll admit publicly, I believe it was partly my fault. Um, what the doctor said is brain tumors and body burns. So if you are actually in a fire, there's a certain type of ulcer. It has a, it has a name and they say you mostly get them from brain traumatic brain injury or surgery or body burns. And it's just the way your body reacts to something so traumatic. Um, but when he, when they did the second brain surgery, they did put him on a, it's like a Prilosec, but I can't remember the actual like generic word for it, but a, a, a kind of medication yeah like like a yeah like something yes like yes well, I got class of drugs I can't remember what it is yeah. but he was okay. on like four or five medicines after that surgery and a lot of them were pain meds so I don't like taking medicines and I don't want anyone to be reliant on them so I remember when we were in New York in the hotel I was spacing out his meds longer than indicated because I thought they were all pain meds and some of those are as needed so it was like every three hours, every six hours. So I had in hindsight accidentally taken that medicine that was coating his stomach and I had, um, delayed it. So I think he got less of a dose that he actually needed. So I always wonder if that was part of it. Um, it could have been part of it and maybe it wasn't, but he had, you know, a reaction to probably the chemo. And that was the other thing the doctor said, they said, this was the perfect storm. You know, he had chemo that was tearing up his stomach. It's kind of like ruining the lining of his stomach. And then he goes in for a massive brain surgery. And then mother of the year, you lighten the, the medications, you know, so it was really probably the perfect storm. And then this ulcer developed. 
Okay, so it was perfect because- storm. I'm not going to allow you in my presence or any of my listeners that are listening to this for you to blame yourself. Because honestly, it sounds to me like if I were sick and you were chose to be my mom in my next life, <laughs> I would I would choose for you to be my mom because mm-hmm. I think you need to give yourself credit for all of the things that you did. I don't, like you said, a lot of times people are in shock they don't know how, and you're this person that is like not going to take no for an answer and maybe wouldn't be in the position that you ended up being in if you would have taken no for an answer, you know? Certainly at some time, I do believe like most parents, moms and dads would, would just rise to the occasion. But I will say I don't take no for an answer. And I, I hope that inspires certain people when you when your gut is telling you to do something, I've read, have you heard of the book Gift of Fear? I feel like you and I have talked about this. Basically talks about how your gut instinct is really actually your brain. It's like more knowledge than like a feeling. Maybe I haven't, I haven't so read that, but I will read it. I will go read with it. Whatever you're feeling, it's not a feeling. It's like based in facts, like things you've learned and read over time. But the gift of fear. It's a good book, but, um, I will say this one quick little story when Chinny's, um, after his first brain surgery, he developed a pseudomeningocele, which is like, it looked like the size of an orange. And it was basically his brain fluid was leaking through the Dora, which is the sac that holds in your brain fluid. And it would develop like a little sac, but it was contained under his skin, but outside of the brain. Um, and people, sadly, if they don't resolve, they often resolve on their own, but if they don't resolve, you have to live with it for the rest of your life. Well, Chinny had one after his first surgery. So what we did was what they always do is they drain it. We call it tapping it. They drain it. And then they hope that it heals. They can go back in and try to restitch it, but that's another open brain surgery. So they had drained it twice and then it would just come back within hours. So I was Googling that Google can be your friend. And what I read was that back in the day, like decades ago, what they would do is they would wrap the brain, like wrap the head super tight so that the fluid, like even the dura couldn't expand, which is inside or your skin couldn't expand. So therefore the dura couldn't expand. The risk is if you have too much brain fluid, which means like there's a growth in there because everyone has the same CCs and if the, of brain fluid, and if there's not enough space, you get um, hydrocephalus, which is swelling in there and then you get the nauseousness and you you can't have that right so long story short that's the risk if you wrap a brain but you would know because you get sick and then we would have you unwrap it and deal so his pd his neurosurgeon drained it one more time and i said can you wrap it i read this on on google and of course he thought i was such a fool um and he wrapped it in like he said sure but he wrapped it in like gauze that basically came off like a hat as soon as we were in the car but I knew this was our last chance and our only chance. Cause he said, if this doesn't work, we're going to have to put a shunt in his brain on Monday, Ugh. which is permanent. And you yeah. never can take a shunt out. Um, so I remember going to target and I found a head. I didn't even know what I was looking for. I found a really tight headband, but it was mesh like elastic mesh. And I knew it wouldn't be soft. So then I drove to CVS and I still didn't know what I was looking for. And then I found this like soft headband and I came home and I did my own little medical experiment. I put it on his head and it was tight. And I said, you have to leave this on 24 seven. He left it on for a few days and I was just looking for signs of like nauseousness. And then we would have taken it off. 
but he didn't have any. And we took it off a few days later and I could see brain fluid starting to fill again under his skin. So I put it right back on. We left it on for, I want to say six weeks, took it off, nothing. So the dura eventually healed under there. And the only reason I tell that story is not like, oh, look what I did. It's just to, if your gut is telling you something, certainly if it's your child, demand it, do it, get another opinion. Don't take, don't take no for an answer that doesn't sound right to you. Like, even though they're doctors, I'm his parent. Like, I know, I know like what I want for him and I'm going to get there. If I can, if it's humanly possible, I'm getting there. You care about my son and it's your job, but I, I always let my, my thoughts sort of trump what I was being told. Um, and That's I do unbelievable. when I consult That's with a lot of parents over the years, cause I, I get connected with parents. I always say that, like, just, just go with your gut and demand things, um, that you believe are going to help your child. Um, I couldn't live with myself if I hadn't done certain things. And I, I'm sure that's the case for most parents. So again, that story is not to be like, look at this. Um, and I did go back and tell the doctor a few times. I was like, you know, you should make something like you should make something tight that you can put on kids' heads. But he, of course, was so irritated <laughs> with my, with my story. But, um, no, but I I mean, there's, you're right. There's a reason why we all, like, like they say, like you have a mother's instinct about stuff and it's true. And I believe in that stuff. And I, and I, like, I talk about all the time, like signs, I'm spiritual. Like, I know you're spiritual. What, like that in itself is more trauma than anybody. I mean, we all, everybody goes through some sort of trauma in their life at some point, something could be anything. And I know that you said in the beginning, like somebody's child getting like their tonsils removed could be trauma to them because they don't understand the extent of you know, going through having a child with a brain tumor, but how were you able to once, I mean, are you, are you paranoid now? Like, are you still like in a place of trauma where you're like, oh my God, he, he fell, is he okay? Or did that subside? And like, how did you get past all of that? That, cause that's a lot, a lot of trauma and you must've had PTSD by that, from that situation. Well, it's funny you say that. Um, so for a while, yes. And as long as you're getting MRIs, and I know this from all the other parents that have been through this that I've talked to, you know, at first you get MRIs every three months. And so you live in like a three month world because I was never going to make plans past that three months. We are not booking a vacation, nothing, because you're scared that will A, be a jinx, but B, really can't plan past that. And yeah, everything is scary. If they cough, you're scared. If they trip, you're scared. Um, you just stare at them. God, if they have a headache, that's like the worst thing you could ever, you know, imagine a kid with a brain tumor saying they have, and who has a headache, everybody regularly. Right. Um, but eventually that went away, like the MRIs get pushed out and I'll never forget when a doctor came in and said to us, your chance now of having a brain tumor is pretty much the same as anybody else in the world, because it's been so many years and we don't even have to do MRIs anymore. I mean, it's recommended, but we don't do them because we had pushed them out to a year and a half. The last one had been a year and a half before. And they said, if you're going to do them this far out, you're going to see a symptom before you even catch it on an MRI. So I would just like him to have more time before he had to go through treatment again. So that was me. My husband and I were disagreed on that, but I won. Um, Because, you know, when when you're arguing with a mom, you're you're probably going to lose even if you're the dad. Um, But now he doesn't have MRIs. I never think of of 
anything related to that. I did for many years, but ironically today he showed me like this weird mole on the back of his head and his dermatologist is on vacation this month. So I was like, of course. So I, I just texted her a photo of it. And I said, I'm sure it's a mole, but it's next to his scar that's next to where the tumor was. And it looks like it's fully on the outside. Maybe it's scar tissue from the scar, but he says it's new and I might have PTSD is how I signed it off. Cause then I started getting embarrassed about texting her about a mole when I know she's on vacation. So I guess it never no. fully goes away, but most yeah, of it does. never fully goes away. And how does he deal with it? Is he, is he like a paranoid? It, like he was so young when it happened, but did he, mm-hmm. does he have any like long-term effects from it? Meaning, has, mentally, meaning mentally. Yeah. Really. yeah. He really has almost nothing physically. Um, mm-hmm. Although there's things, you know, like sometimes we'd sit around and be like, is this, is this because of his personality? Was he born this way? Or is it because of what he went through? And certain things you'll never know, you know, like cries easily. I don't know why he does that. You know, it could be one or the other. Um, he typically doesn't worry, but with this mole, he did say, cause when I looked at it, I said, that's weird. I was, again, should have used more calming words. Like, yeah, it's nothing. We'll get a check. But I said, well, that's weird that it's new. And then he said, could it be brain cancer? I said, no, it couldn't be brain cancer, but like, he'll have a, at a random moment like that. What he, what his struggle has been more the scars. So he has a long scar on his stomach that gets so much better with time. But in the beginning, it was like a Frankenstein scar, long, very red with like dots from the sutures going down the side. And then he has a port scar up here on his chest. Um, and then he has, you know, a pretty big scar on the back of his head because he's had two craniotomies. So his hair covers it mostly, but there's no hair that grows on this like one inch strip. So his other hair covers it. But when that shows or when he's randomly seen it in a photo, which is, you know, hard to see the back of your head, um, he's self-conscious and, and he'll, it was more a few years ago, I think right when he was around like 10, maybe when he started junior guards and was going to be at the beach all the time without a shirt or probably coming into liking girls, um, got self-conscious about the scars. So our amazing dermatologist has lasered a lot of the, um, stomach one off Part one's faded. Nothing you can do about this one, but keep your hair over it. And I just keep saying to him, trust me, girls like scars. And that's a cool story. And any girl's just going to love you more probably when she, when she knows your story. Um, but that was, that's his only real issue so far. He did have a kid in fifth grade draw a picture of him with something on the back of his head and say something mean. And he said the class laughed, but for the most part, he's had so much, as you know, love and support from this community. And he has a tour to peer team every year and we do an event every year you know, the go gold thing, like there's just a lot done around to support him. And he was like a little celebrity for a long time too. So when he was little, it was all great. He did get to the point where he doesn't want his name attached to certain things because, you know, he's a teenager now. Um, I think when he's older, he'll be comfortable telling his story, but just for now he's, he's a little more guarded, but for the most part, he's fine. Like he's like a little miracle child. So for my listeners that are listening to this, let's talk about what you've done because you really have spent a lot of your life since this has happened. It's been what, like close to a decade. Mm-hmm. Has um, been a decade. And you've decided that you were going to kind of give back. And so let's talk about what you've done on that side. Okay. So after he was better, you know, I would say it took a couple of years for me to even 
function like a normal person. But the first thing we did was a brain tumor walk. It was in El Segundo. I can't remember who told me about it, but we just did it as a family. Um, and then I got involved a little bit with them. It's the Brad Kaminsky Foundation who, who sponsors it. They're in Philadelphia, but she does walks. This woman who's incredible, Lisa, she lost her brother to a brain tumor years and years ago. And she has every year since he passed away. And I'm going to guess now it's been maybe 20 years because this walk was started long before Ginny um, was diagnosed 10 years ago all over the country. She does other events too. So we got involved in that. Then we had team Chinny show up and walk for that with friends and raise some money. So we did that for a while. And then we got to tour to pier come before go gold or after, I don't know. So tour um, to pier is a, is a, um, in the, in the South Bay area, this is a, a, a cycling, um, what is it? I do it every year too. Yeah. Raise money I mean, for cancer research. Yes. Yeah. Uh, your listeners should look it up because it would be incredible in any city and it's actually in Seattle now. And hopefully one day it'll be in more cities, but they, and it's really, get, really fun. It's super fun. Uh, I do it every a, year. Yeah. It's a massive community event and they raised last year. I could be misquoting, but every year more than the year before last year was like $1.3 million or, or maybe 1.5, but within five hours of riding. So they put hundreds of stationary bikes on, facing the ocean there's riders every hour for five hours on each bike. They raise money and they raise that much money just from our community. I mean, we live, you and I both know there's some really wonderful people here. And I say that fairly oh, fantastic. Yeah. But as a whole, this is an there's also really, community. really amazing, amazing uh, people. You're one of them. But this community comes together. Throughout this whole shit show of a time. And there's really right. great, Great, great people here too. So yes. we're not just surrounded by we're not just surrounded by the Queen of All Karens and Brenda and all the people. No, and, and there's a lot of generosity in this town. And what I learned yes. through like fundraising and raising awareness of things, it's like most people just need to be told how to help and they'll help. But most people and until this happened, I was one of them too. You don't really know where to begin if you want, if you're a helpful person or a generous person. But if somebody makes it really simple for you and just says, "Donate here" or "Come to this" or "I need dog blankets because I'm going to the shelter," all of a sudden I've posted that a couple times on Facebook, and I'll have like 75 friends say, "Oh, I just put 20 blankets out for you on the front porch." Like people do so much. Also, they though, also though, your people like you. It's you're somebody that like everybody likes. So, it, you know, that has a or, lot to do with you. Or they're scared. Or they're scared. <laughs> they're they're doctors. Right. <laughs> um, right. And then, and then, cause I, I, I mean, I, there's a whole second podcast. I say this with a ton of guests. You're one of them, but I only like these, I try to keep these at an hour because I don't want people to, you know, to, but there's so much more stuff that you've done. What is the other event that you did that you've Okay. You were so I'll doing? be really fast. So yeah. Go Gold is my good friend, Christina Holman and I, she, her older son met Chase, my older son in preschool. And she, we barely knew each other because that was the year Cheney was diagnosed, but we had this, our boys had this crazy connection. We have this crazy connection and it was her idea to start this event because she knew a girl. And this will wrap up the whole podcast. She was following the story right after Chinny got better of a girl from her hometown whose daughter was going to pass away from a DIPG, a fatal type of brain tumor that we thought Chinny had. And the girl, Jennifer, 
did end up passing away. But Christina was so inspired by that story and became connected to the, to Jennifer's mom, Libby, that Christina said to me, Tara, we have to do something to help kids with brain tumors. We have to like Chinny and Jennifer didn't survive it. And let's do something. Anyways, it was her brainchild. I always like, like people think I'm the face of it because I have the local kid, but really I'm Christina's assistant. She came up with this, um, event that we hosted. We hosted it four or five years in a row at the Manhattan beach country club. And it started with just our friends. And we looked around and we were like, this would be a, like a party that we would throw. But we brought in an amazing speaker from, um, uh, the Fred Hutch center up in Seattle, who's a former pediatric, um, brain surgeon who just said to himself, I'm so tired of taking these tumors out of these poor little kids. I want to find a cure. And he moved over to research and he's been researching ever since. And we ended up raising, you know, more money every year. And I think total within maybe the four years we did it, we had raised over a million dollars. And that's just from our community. That's amazing. Donating, donating, donating. Yeah. I mean, people want to help. So because of COVID, we haven't had the event in a couple of years. Um, but we just texted about getting things going again. And so anyways, there's, there's stuff people can do. And, and I guess what I would say to everybody is it doesn't matter what you do, big or small, just do one thing. If you do, if every human being did one helpful thing for another human or an animal, which God, if Chinny didn't have a brain tumor, I would really just be helping animals. I don't like people that much. <laughs> um, he, if yeah, everybody just did, oh, the best, if, yeah. if everybody just did one little thing, it would be a different world because there's so many people that don't do anything, not because they don't want to, because they just don't really know what to do. So just find something, everybody find one thing and just do it. And I think it'll you're, be, you're such an inspiration to me. And I'm so, I, I just like hearing that. Cause I'd never really heard the whole story. I'd heard like bits of it, but just like knowing you and what kind of person you are, I, I just, I'm really, I say this a lot on my podcast, but I do believe like the people that I bring on, I'm supposed to know, and I'm supposed to share their stories. I know that if there's somebody out there that's listening or as a friend that has some kind of like, you know, diagnosis or knows of somebody that was diagnosed with some kind of cancer or anything like that. I feel like listening to your story just makes me that much more understand that you can, you will always have to get a second opinion, number one, and never take no for an answer. And like we talked about, people are, are humans and it's not to put doctors down, but it's just like, if you go, go with your gut, like you said, what is that book you referenced again? Cause I mean, um, the gift, the gift of fear. The gift. I of think fear. the author is Gavin DeGraw or something like that, but it's the gift of fear. Okay. So it's true. The gift of fear is a gift in a weird way. And you learn something, you came out better from this situation. Life's still hard. That's podcast number two. Um, but I'm, I'm really proud of you and I'm really, I'm really happy to call you my friend and thank you so much for coming on and sharing the story. You're a good mama. You're a really good mama. Well, I have two teenage boys who would totally disagree with you, but, um, maybe one, maybe one day they'll, they'll think so, but I will just say too, um, if any of your listeners end up, 
unfortunately, knowing a child who gets diagnosed with this, reach out to Megan, who will reach out to me because I always. Yeah, what's your Instagram? Because I'm sure I have people that will listen and ha- will be ha- somebody has been affected by this. What's your Instagram? So, is it is it bad that I don't know? Um, you no, no, no. So my Instagram, everybody, really quickly, I'll do my Instagram plug. Um, if you ever have questions or you need anything from me, I love hearing from you. It's at Judging Megan. Um, remember, by the way, that um, I love a good review on my podcasts, and um, and it helps people find me. So. People finding my podcast makes me happy because I have more listeners, more people finding out about me. I also want to thank my listeners in Ireland because I'm charting there and those are my people. Yeah. I just had to, I had to throw that out. And Irish Sophie, I can't wait for you to hear this podcast and I can't wait to be sporting our gold sheep again sometime soon on our walks. And Tara, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce you to the world of gold sheep. Cause it's I feel like, I feel like I've seen them before. They're fun. They're super cute. Um, Anyways, what after your shout out to Ireland, we should uh, toast them. Toast my Irish. Oh, I love my Irish listeners. Me, me you go get your wine now. Yeah. Now I'm going to go have my romper. I really was drinking water. Did you figure out what your Instagram was? Is it just my Instagram name? Is that what you mean? Yeah. What is it? Now my age is showing. Um, it is. <laughs> You sound like Pat, my mom. Matt, Meg. Yes. Tell me how to use Instagram. Tara underscore TKH. Okay. So if you have questions or you want to get in touch with Tara and ask her questions and you've been through something like this, God forbid, or you know somebody, she's a great resource. She's super smart. I love her. She's my friend. And in closing, I'm going to go drink some Rombauer and toast you and keep living, keep praying and keep growing. So I talk a lot about how much therapy saved my life and how lucky I am to have my amazing therapist, Dr. Nay. But not everybody can get an appointment with Dr. Nay. And I really wanted to break the stigma on getting help or asking for help. So that is why I partnered with a company called online-therapy.com. They have plans that start around $30 a week. And you can get weekly therapy sessions for less than $50 a week. You can also get my 20% off code by going to my website, judgingmegan.com and you go to the therapy tab and if you click on the link at the bottom you can get 20% off your first month
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.